Murphy, I'm a ruling elder here, as been, has been mentioned. So uh, if you're a visitor today, you're actually getting the third string. And uh, so I hope uh, you come back again when uh, one of our uh, two pastors are preaching. Uh, Dr. Dave is, uh, I believe, traveling uh, back to, to, uh, to us right now. And uh, uh, Dave Dorst is our associate pastor. So I, play, I welcome you to come back and uh, see them sometime. Uh, preach. Well, as a ruling elder here, I have the privilege to exhort you from God's Word about once every two years or so. The last time, actually, I preached was uh, was two years ago, uh, just uh, prior to my ordination as elder in 2014. And unlike our pastors, who really only have about a week or two to get prepared for each message, I've had months uh, to get ready, and uh, that can be a little daunting as well. And last fall, actually, uh, Dr. Dave uh, told me I'd be preaching this summer. He likes to lay out the, uh, the, the preaching schedule six months or longer in advance, and so I knew we'd still be in Exodus this summer, and I was a little bit uh, trepidatious as, uh, as I considered what passage I might get, um, as I know there's a lot of uh, difficult teaching and difficult applications there, teachings about utensils and priestly clothing and, and structures and so on, uh, difficult passages about social laws for the wandering Israelites. And I was a little bit worried I'd end up with one of those, but I could tell you I actually uh, was blessed to get a passage today that really preaches. Uh, we're going to do the whole chapter, Exodus 33, and there's a lot of great stuff in there. And if I start uh, kind of wandering away from the podium here, I was asked uh, if, I, if I'm a wanderer while I preach. Uh, and if I end up wandering over here, David, you shoo me back, and you know, if I end up over here, because I've got a lot to cover. And I am sick, and so if I end up you know, flopping on the ground, Herman, you're going to have to call 911 for I hope you have some good bars in here. But it sounds like my chest is, uh, is uh, giving me a bit of a reprieve, and I thank God for that. But there's some, ex some challenging stuff in Exodus 33 as well, and I'm confident and hopeful uh, that you, today, in today's message you will see yourself as we study uh, the Israelites' uh, response to some pretty uh, scary news. And with God's enablement, I hope you also see Jesus. Uh, so with that, uh, will you pray with me as we begin the study of God's Word? Heavenly Father, we need you. Uh, we need you in the mundane, we need you in the momentous, and we need you everywhere in between. As we open your Word this morning, help us to see that apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, we are without hope. I pray especially for those here this morning who do not know they need you. Would you open their eyes to the gospel? Help us, Holy Spirit, to have the confidence in knowing that you are always with your people, that as Christians you will never leave us nor forsake us. Dear Jesus, as I preach this morning from your word, I pray that in spite of my sinfulness, you would allow nothing to come from my mouth that is inconsistent with your truth. I pray that as we read today's passage, we would see you, Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you that by faith we have the right to be called the children of God. And Father, we pray these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we'll be climbing what one commentator referred to as the zenith of the narrative that spans from chapter 32 to chapter 34, and in chapter 33 of Exodus, we'll see the Israelites fearfully mourning as God delivers devastating news to his stiff-necked people. We will see the desperate pleas of Moses as he begs God to have mercy on the Israelites as God commands them to leave the mountain of his presence. And we will see God's goodness and sovereign grace as he responds to what Charles Spurgeon called the greatest petition that man ever asked of God. 
And the main points I would like you to take notice of as we explore the passage this morning are in your sermon outline. Uh, they are, the first one is uh, the necessity of God's presence with his people. The necessity of God's presence with his people. And the second main point is the character of God revealed. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Exodus 33 and ask you to stand, if you, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. So please stand. I will read verses 1 through 23, the entire chapter. The words are also included in your bulletin insert. This is God's Word. It is given to us for our instruction. Please pay careful attention. Chapter 33, starting in the first verse. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people from whom people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I would go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off, from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. When Moses turned again into, into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore... If I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then 
I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Please be seated. Well, in the classic book, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, originally published in 1818, the character of Dr. Victor Frankenstein experiments with reanimating the dead. And I have to confess, I'm one of those weird people that likes the zombie genre, so that sounds like a, a pretty cool premise for a book to me. But when Dr. Frankenstein realizes that the monster he created is an uncontrollable, uncontainable, unlovable brute, he abandons his hideous creation and deprives him of the fatherly affections and protection the creature longs desperately to have. The result is a tragic story of heartbreaking despair, cruel revenge, and wanton, unrepentant violence and destruction. You see, abandonment is one of the most difficult experiences anyone could ever face. And it's precisely what the Israelites are confronted with in the first six verses of our, pas- our passage today. The sin of idolatry with the golden calf back in Exodus 32 had separated them from God. The following plague that concluded the previous chapter here in chapter 33 uh, opens with God telling Moses to break camp, pack up and leave Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. He was casting them out of a place where they saw his presence, seemingly repudiating his promise to be with them and accompany them and protect them on their journey to the land he promised to their fathers. Yahweh, who had been dramatically and visibly present with them in the pillar of fire and cloud during their escape from Egypt, was sending them onward. God, who dwelt thunderously within the cloud that descended down Mount Sinai while Moses received the law, was pushing them out of the camp. But this time, they would not be joined by his presence. A mere angel, a messenger from God would guide them. They would have success and reach the promised land, but success without God. They would reach the promised land, but success without God. As we return today's passage in verses 1 through 6, we will see how a stiff-necked people respond to a disastrous word. And that's the next blank in your outline. A stiff-necked people respond to a disastrous word. So looking at verse 1 and, and uh, through 6, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Our, verse, our first verse today is actually bookend with verses 7 and 8 from the previous chapter, which read, The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and made for themselves a golden calf, and worshipped it, and sacrificed to it. Moses, told, Moses told, is told to leave God's presence and go down from Mount Sinai when the people sin with the golden calf. Here in Exodus chapter 33, verse 1, he is told to go up, break camp and go up. Note also that in both passages, the Lord verbally disowns the Israelites when he speaks uh, with Moses and calls them your people whom you led out of the land of Egypt. 
In verse 2 of our passage, the Lord makes an important distinction. Back in chapter 23, when the conquest of Canaan was promised, God said his angel would be with them and that his angel would have his name in him. And commentators have suggested that the angel of chapter 23 is the second person of the Trinity, a theophany or a Christophany, the, the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. However, here in chapter 33, God is no longer sending the Son as an angel to accompany the Israelites. God says he is now merely sending a messenger, an angel, to guide them to the land promised to their fathers. And this distinction was not lost on the Israelites. They didn't, they didn't miss that little detail. It was devastating news to them. It was as, and as if this wasn't enough, God told them to go up to the land he promised them, but emphatically stated in verse 3 that he would not go up among them. He would give them success without his presence. Now, I wonder how many of us would think that was such a bad deal. What if God said to us, I'll give you success, I'll give you good health, great family, good job, wealth, but I will not be with you. Would that be disastrous news? Would it? Well, it should be. In the next section, he says that due to their obstinate disobedience, his anger would destroy them if he did go up with them. A wrathful consequence that he would repeat twice in our passage this morning. Verses 4 through 6. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I would go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now I wonder, do you, do you have clothes that you like to wear during you know, a, a, you know, a, a party or some sort of uh, happy occasion? Do you have a, a special pair of shoes, maybe a, a tie or something like that that you like to wear kind of as uh, you know, just a celebratory kind of thing? Well, you know, personally, I like to wear Hawaiian shirts at, at barbecues, right? And, and I've got some pretty good ones. And my friend over here, Lou Zanino, he's got one on right now. I don't know if someone told you. I mean, maybe Doris colluded with you, but uh, Lou's got some doozies. And John Paul May happens to have a Hawaiian shirt on as well. Maybe we should get up here on stage and see who's got the best one. Obviously, I don't have one on today. But the point is, is that we're wearing clothes because we're happy. We're wearing clothes that kind of uh, are emblematic of, of uh, you know, celebrating and so on. And they're for us, they're costumes. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm half Filipino. The other half is Irish, so I'm an Irapino, some, some might call me. Um, Lou over here, clearly Italian. Um, but Josh Comica Vivole. That guy's Hawaiian, and he can wear just about any Hawaiian shirt for any occasion. No party required, right? Flip-flops and flowery shirts are not costumes in Josh's family. Um, but the Israelites apparently uh, had some special clothing or some sort of ornamental or festival, fe festive things that they were wearing, and when they heard this news, uh, they took them off. They, when they heard that, that God would not be with them, it was disastrous, and they went into mourning, and they removed any and all festal ornamentation and mourned. You see, in ancient Hebrew culture, the wearing of happy clothing or ornaments, those types of things, uh, like jewelry, were not fitting for people who were in mourning. And I'm sure you can recall, uh, throughout the Old Testament, we see the Israelites in various times of mourning putting, uh, putting themselves in sackcloth and ashes as a sign of their deep mourning. Well, here in these verses... 
We also have a repeating of the consequences if God were to go up with his stiff-necked people. They would be consumed. And we have a statement from God that really must have been terrifying uh, to the Israelites. He tells them to not only remove their ornamentation, uh, but he tells them to take, take off those ornaments while he considers what to do with them. They must have thought, how much worse could things get? We're leaving the place of God's presence and heading out into the wilderness, guided by a mere angel, to fight our way into the land promised to our fathers without the God who promised it to us. And folks, this is many times worse than an angry parent saying, now you sit there and you think about what you've done while I consider what I'm going to do with you. Can you, can you kind of get the sense of how terrifying that would be? Uh, you know, we, re, we read in Hebrews chapter uh, 10, verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And we saw some terrible things happen to the Israelites uh, in the previous chapter. And you consider the, the, what happened uh, in the plagues in Egypt and to have this kind of hanging uh, over them must have been quite terrifying. So in response to this anonymous statement, and as a reminder of their sinful rebellion, the Israelites removed their ornaments for the remainder of Exodus, another 40 years or more wandering in the desert before they enter the Promised Land. In the next section, verses 7 through 11, we'll see how this separation began to take effect as we see Moses intercede far outside the camp. Uh, and that's the next blank in your outline, intercession far outside the camp. Continuing with our passage, the narrative is actually a little bit broken up here. In the next uh, section, verses 7 through 11, it reads, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door. And watch Moses until he had gone out, or gone into the tent. <laughs> Moses entered the tent. The pillar of cloud would descend and, des- and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the, tent, into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now it's important to note here that the tent of meeting in the tabernacle has not been built yet. We'll read about that later in Exodus 40 as we conclude uh, the book of Exodus. And unlike the tent of meeting within the tabernacle, this tent of meeting was far outside the camp, as we read. The tabernacle was a large structure that was meant to be built and in the center of the Israelite camp. Worship of Yahweh was supposed to be central to the people of Israel, and it is today as well. Now this tent of meeting we're reading about today, however, was small enough for Moses to pitch himself. And unlike the tent of meeting with its attending priests and Levites, Moses attended to this tent alone. And young Joshua... It was its sole caretaker and guard. It's also important to note that unlike Mount Sinai, this tent was close enough for all within the camp to witness Moses going in and out of God's presence. When he entered the tent, the whole assembly of Israel could see the pillar of cloud descending upon it. They would bow down and worship at the entrance of their family tents. They could see the pillar lift when Moses left the tent and all of Israel could see that, God, that Moses was God's man. 
His leadership and special relationship with the Lord were repeatedly confirmed in full view of the nation, which, as we've read previously in Exodus, numbered about 600,000 men. And so we're talking well over a million people watching Moses walk to and from this, this tent outside the camp to intercede. By comparison, this display of God's presence was not on some far-off peak like Mount Sinai. This display of an affirmation of Moses' special place of leadership was up close and personal, and yet it was outside the camp. Face-to-face communication these days is a bit of a rarity. I was once a pilot, and since about 2007, I've been flying a desk. And I routinely send and receive 100 or more emails a day. And it's actually kind of amazing what I'm able to accomplish without ever speaking a word. Today in my consultant life, in my line of work, I often communicate with important people in our government, in our military, throughout our country. And when it's really important, I pick up the phone. Maybe someone holds a teleconference. When important decisions need to be made, however, we meet face-to-face. Because there's something special about speaking face-to-face that cannot be conveyed in an email or text. Tone, volume, facial expressions, subtle body language, posture, humor, anger, disappointment, anticipation, all these things are lost in pixelated digital communications. Now kids these days, and I'm actually old enough now to say that, have their own way of communicating, right? They communicate with their thumbs and oftentimes uh, use a language that's almost unintelligible to me. Now, to communicate their feelings, they might throw in some emoticons or some emojis or something like that. That's kind of impressive. I know that term. To communicate their feelings, they do those kinds of things, right? And uh, you know, somehow they can carry on these really long conversations and little bursts of text of 140 characters or less. But what does it mean here in our text when we read that Moses and God communicated face to face? God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a face. He's an omnipresent, omnipotent spirit. Face to face here then means, and it refers to an intimate, one-on-one personal communication and close personal relationship. God didn't somehow lower his self down to Moses' lowly station, but he did have close, intimate, and direct communication with him. And we know that Moses was in God's presence several times up to this point. For instance, Moses was with God and heard his voice when Yahweh spoke to him from the burning bush. Most recently in our study of Exodus, we learned that he spent 40 days and 40 nights up on Mount Sinai as he received God's word, God's law. <laughs> Reading on, we see that Moses used his close relationship with God and God's own promises to his people to intercede for the obstinate people he was charged to lead. He also makes an audacious request and receives exactly what he needed in response. And that's the last two blanks in your outline. Moses gets exactly what he needs, the goodness of God's character. The goodness of God's character. So let's resume the narrative in verse 12. It says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. 
And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are what? What does it say? So that we are distinct. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses was in essence saying in verses 12, 13, Hey God, this... This, this guardian angel thing is not going to make it. It's not enough for us to just have your angel accompanying us. You know me. You're, you're commanding me to lead these people out. You know that I'm afraid. You know that's a daunting task. If you really love me, if you really know me, show me now. He's essentially saying seeing is believing. How many people have felt that before, right? He's saying I need to know your ways so I can continue in your favor. And he boldly reminds God, hey God, by the way, this people, this nation, this is your people. This is your nation. Yahweh, you have made promises to your people. And that's exactly the kind of faith, that is exactly the faith that God was looking for in Moses. And so God cuts him off in the middle of this plea and responds by saying, my presence will be with you and I will give you rest. But Moses continues to lay out his case, undaunted by that answer almost, as if he can't take yes for an answer. And he continues and leads us actually to an important point of application. He says in verse, Moses says in verses 15 and 16, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from this place. Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying that without God's presence with them, they are lost. There is no hope. There is nothing distinctive between them and all the pagan nations of the world. He says to God, without you with us, it would be better for us to stay here in the wilderness and die. So just kill us now, essentially, is what he's saying. If you cancel your promises to be with us, to rule over us, we have lost our identity. And the application here for us is that as God's people, we are meant to be distinct. We are meant to be different. The world is supposed to see that God is with us. Our lives are supposed to be a signpost, not pointing at ourselves, pointing away from us and pointing to Jesus. Is that true? Is that true? Or does the world see no difference between us and them? Are we distinct? Are we different in how we work, how we play, how we relate to one another and to them, how we forgive, how we speak? Are we distinct in how we love, how we endure hardship, how we handle success? Brothers and sisters, we should be. We're meant to be distinct. God is saying, or Moses is saying to God, without you there would be no need for the tabernacle, no priests, no sacrifices, no way to be forgiven for their sins, no way to worship. He's saying we would be indistinct from the world and the cataclysmic loss of God's sustaining and protecting presence with them would leave them utterly abandoned and hopelessly vulnerable. And so I ask again, would we be devastated if God declared that he would not be with us? If we were successful and looked and lived just like the world and we did it without Christ, would we think that was good? Would we? If you think success without the presence of Christ in your life sounds pretty good, then I ask that you 
reconsider your priorities and examine how the Israelites took this disastrous news. Israel as a nation had grievously sinned and stubbornly, stubbornly, uh, grievously and stubbornly sinned against the Lord. They sought to replace God with a golden idol and bowed down and worshiped to it and sacrificed to it. God stated that he would remove, him, uh, remove them from his presence. In response, the people showed signs of genuine repentance. And the people's mediator, Moses, pleaded on their behalf and used God's own promises to his people as exhibit A and his plea for mercy. And because of his relationship with the mediator and the permanence of God's promises, God once again mercifully relented and gave his people grace. Look at verse 17. God says, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Believers in Christ, we have a mediator better than Moses, who at this moment sits in heaven, having completed his work of redemption, and pleads our case before the Father on the merit of his righteousness and his irrevocable promises. As Christians, we will never be abandoned by Christ. Hebrews 13.5 tells us he will never leave us nor forsake us. Once we have trusted Christ, our sinfulness will never unearn the salvation we didn't earn in the first place. Scripture tells us that we are the, holy, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have him indwelling us. We can go nowhere without God. Sadly, in spite of this truth, we are still we still sin and rebelliously cling to our old natures. Like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, we may have the desire to do what's right, but in weakness and disbelief, lack the ability in our weak flesh to carry it out. We too often do not do the good that we want and that we know God wants from us, but instead we do the, the very evil that we do not want to do. That is what we keep doing. For we are far too often rebellious and stiff-necked like the Israelites, discontent with God's commands. We follow after the idols of our lives and too often love them more than we love our Savior. But praise God that we have a patient and long-suffering mediator who is always graciously interceding for us, a Savior who sacrificially stood in our place and suffered the exact separation and abandonment for the Father that we deserve as sinners. Now, I've shared this before. As Christians, we are the benefactors of what I call a miraculous swap. Now, follow this. At the cross, Christ received the punishment that we deserved. In order for us to receive the reward only he deserved, he was abandoned, he was separated, he was forsaken in our place. He was our substitute. And we're going to sing as our concluding song, a great song that, that brings that out. And I wanted you to remember the idea of this miraculous swap when we get to it. Isaiah 53, 4 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We, on the merit of Christ's righteousness, and not our own goodness or good works, are eternally accepted. He was rejected, we are accepted, and that, my friends, is the gospel. It's the best news you will ever hear. Can I get an amen for that? I only got one over here. All right, thanks. 
Let's continue our text. Moses next makes the most audacious request in verse 18. He says to God, please show me your glory. Charles Spurgeon said in his sermon entitled A View of God's Glory from November 1908, quote, why it's the greatest petition that man ever asked of God. It seems to me, Spurgeon writes, the greatest stretch of faith that I have ever heard or read of. It appears to me that this prayer contains a greater amount of faith than all the others put together. It is the greatest request that man could make to God. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And what's God's response to this outrageous faith and this audacious request? We read on verse 19 to the end of the chapter. God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand, I take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God answers Moses by telling him that he will show him his goodness, his splendor, his magnificent character. He tells Moses, just as he did in Exodus 3.13, when Moses made another audacious request, he tells Moses his name. He says, the Lord How wonderful it is that God answers Moses in this way. He tells Moses that he will pass his majestic, incomparable goodness before him while he proclaiming his name. And by the way, in case you were wondering, there's nothing but goodness in God. There's nothing else to see as he passes by but the goodness of his character. God follows this pronouncement with a statement about his sovereignty. And as it's repeated by Paul in Romans 9.15, he says it is his prerogative, his choice, his right as the creator of the universe to give grace or to withhold mercy. It is his sovereign choice to determine to whom he will have compassion and to whom he will show mercy. And now I know that's, that's a hard thing to understand, maybe even a hard thing to accept, but it is the consistent teaching of the Old and New Testaments. God is not random. He is not capricious. He's not unjust. And it is grace that he shows anyone mercy, for we all deserve his eternal se- uh, deserve eternal separation from him. You do, I do, we all do. Everyone, everywhere does. Here in Exodus 33, we read that God chooses to sovereignly show Israel grace and mercy in spite of their stubbornness and idolatry. Now, to be clear with our definitions, grace is, is not just something you say as you sit down for a meal and you, you pray over your meal and you, we call that grace. It's not, not grace in the, in the sense that I'm talking about today. Grace is the good thing that you get that you don't deserve. You catch that? Grace is the good thing that you get that you don't deserve. It's unmerited favor. You can't earn grace. You don't work for grace. It's unmerited. You didn't deserve it. Now, mercy, on the other hand, kind of the other side of the coin, is the withholding of the just punishment that you do deserve. And when you personally trust in Christ and his completed work on the cross as a payment for your sins, you get both grace and mercy. 
He gets your punishment. You get grace and mercy. And that's that miraculous swap I mentioned. Theologians call double imputation. From the moment you believe in the gospel and, for, and forever after, Christ is imputed, credited with all of your sin. And at that same moment, you are imputed, credited with his perfection. All of his perfection is transferred to your account. His righteousness is irrevocably, eternally, and forever given to you. And by faith in Christ, you are declared righteous, sinless before the Father. You are justified once and for all. And that that term justified means to be declared innocent. And if you understand that, you understand the gospel. The question is, do you believe it? Friends, whether you believe it or not, and I hope you do, you need it. You need the gospel. We all do. And it is true. Brothers and sisters, as we look at the stiff-necked Israelites in today's passage, we have to admit we see ourselves in them. Time and again, we go our own way. We abandon God in our hearts and refuse to obey his commands. And if you're like me, and I suspect you are, in unbelief, you too often wander and act like God, the God of the universe is not there, like you do not have the Holy Spirit within you. When we sin, we pridefully live like God is not our sovereign king. And I'm convinced that every time we sin, we do one of two, th- we're saying essentially one of two things, either that God doesn't exist or that he's not the boss of me. We sin because we like it. I mean, let's, let's be honest for a moment here. That's why we sin. We don't want to be ruled. We don't want to have a Lord. We don't, want to, we don't want our God to be king. But I want you to hear this as well. In every case for the believer, God does not and will not abandon us. He cannot abandon us. He will not remove his Holy Spirit from a believer. To abandon his people would be contrary to God's character. It would be a violation of his irrevocable promises. There are some things that our omnipotent God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot break his promises. He cannot do anything that violates his sinful, sinless character. Now listen to me. Believer, if God feels distant, if it feels like your, sin, your, your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, it's not God who is far off. He has not abandoned you. He has not separated himself from you. You have wandered away. Your heart is distant. Repent. Mourn over your sin. Hate your sin and return from it. Go back. Run back to the loving arms of your gracious and merciful mediator. Like Moses, claim the promise of, promises of God for yourself. Boldly and confidently ask God to show you his goodness and unchanging character. You will not be disappointed. Here in our passage, God tells Moses that he will not show him his face. And recall from earlier, God does not have a face. He does not have a body. So-called anthropomorphic descriptions of God in Scripture are there to help us finite human beings to begin to understand, comprehend just a glimpse of his glory, his infinitely good, just, and holy character. We, we, we think uh, in terms of arms and legs and eyes and ears and those types of things because we have those things, but God does not. Now just for a second here, if you would quickly turn to Isaiah 59 uh, with me, and I'll just uh, read an example of this. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, if you take your Bible and you're 
open it in half, just a little bit to the right of where it breaks, you'll, you'll leave uh, Psalms and Proverbs and you'll find yourself uh, a few books uh, in Isaiah. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. By the way, notice in this passage that it is our sins and our iniquities that make a separation between us and God. But his hand or his arm in the NIV is not too short to save. It's always long enough to reach us no matter how far we've wandered. His ear is never too dull to hear your plea for acceptance and your plea for restoration. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that you're too far, that your sin is too complex, too intertwined, too deeply entrenched to be forgiven from God or to be restored into fellowship? That's a lie. Don't believe that. God's arm is not too short to save. His ear is never going to be too dull to hear. Back to our passage in Exodus 33. For the second time, we have God speaking about his face. Moses had already been said to have had face-to-face conversations with God, but here God is talking about more than close communion with him. He is responding to what Moses really wants. Moses is afraid. What he has ahead of him is scary. He's going to be leaving uh, the, the, the valley underneath Mount Sinai and proceeding with the Israelites toward the promised land and, and fighting his way into it. Moses wants to see and experience God in his unveiled fullness. He wants to see God as he really is, nothing held back. And that's why Spurgeon says this is the greatest request that man can make of God, because no one has ever seen God in this way and lived. No one this side of heaven at least. Because one day, every one of us who has believed in Christ for his own salvation will see God as he really is. The unmitigated brilliance and pure splendor of his character and his being would consume us if we were to see him with our fleshly eyes in his full glory before our complete redemption in heaven. You see, you need to be blameless and spotless to stand before God. His standard is perfection. Anything less than that would be consuming if we were to be in front of him. God says to Moses, man cannot see me and live. You and I in this life are still struggling with sin. And to paraphrase John Newton, the former slave ship captain and eventual writer of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, we are not as we were meant to be. We are not yet what we will be. But thank God we are not what we used to be. If you or I were to see God before we are eternally rid of our sinful natures that would kill us, Praise God that one day in heaven, Christ will present every believer to the Father blameless. So God tells Moses here in our passage that he will put Moses in a safe place, the cleft of a rock, and allow him to witness what several commentators have referred to as the afterglow or the lingering effects of God's glory as he moves away. It was not the full blinding and consuming glory that we Uh, of his beaming holiness, but this experience would be powerful enough for Moses to be captivated with its splendor and majesty. It was powerful enough to give Moses the strength and courage and confidence he needed to lead the people out into the wilderness and onward toward the promised land. God gave Moses exactly what he needed for the difficult task of serving obediently in his kingdom. And we as believers can expect nothing less of our Savior 
Jesus Christ. You need to pray. Do that quietly for a few moments and I'll close. Please pray with me. Gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, Lord, we admit, we admit that we see ourselves in the rebellious and stubborn Israelites. Far too often we are content to worship you outside the camp of our daily lives. We keep you at a distance throughout the week. Often we come to church smiling on the outside, but inside we feel stressed or empty. We confess that we don't feel your presence with us and we value the things of the world more than we value you. Lord, help us to repent of being distant from you. Help us to see your glory, your goodness. Show us Jesus and the goodness of his character. Help us to know that your long and merciful arm stands ready to draw us to yourself and embrace us and, and help us, dear Lord, to know that your presence will never leave us. Father, give us the desire to live lives that are distinct. Show us Jesus and empower us to show, empower us to show him to the world with gentleness and respect. May our lives point away from ourselves and to our Savior. And may you use us to lead the lost and wandering to a promised place where their sins will never be counted against them. Thank you, dear Jesus for paying the price we could never pay in order for us to have the salvation we could never earn. And thank you for today's lesson. May the truth of your words remain long after my words have vanished. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Now as we